Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version, a podcast in which I get to interview inspiring women whose paths have crossed mine. I am your host, Maria Leonard Olson. I'm an attorney based in Washington, D.C. with a civil litigation practice. I also am uh, an author of several books. The most recent is 50 After 50, Becoming Your Best uh, 50 after 50, reframing the next chapter of your life. This is becoming your best version. I also have a TEDx talk that could use more likes to raise it in the visibility algorithm. And I'm also a mentor to women in recovery. I have 10 years of, of sobriety right now, hard fought sobriety. And I am very excited to interview today, Mary Beth O'Connor. Judge Mary Beth O'Connor. She has been clean and sober since 1994. She's also in recovery from abuse and trauma. The details of her story can be found in her memoir called From Judge Junkie to Judge One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction, where she describes the child abuse that led her to use meta metamphetamine beginning at 17 the chaos of her 15-year addiction, and building an individual recovery plan that worked for her. Mary Beth is a director and secretary for She Recovers Foundation and is a director for Life Ring Secular Recovery. She regularly speaks on behalf of Life Ring, She Recovers, and Multiple Paths to Recovery. She also develops relationships with organizations supportive of the Multiple Pathways approach, such as participating in San Francisco's Metamphetamine Task Force and working on joint projects with Women for Sobriety. Mary Beth has had numerous essays and memoir writings published, such as in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Recovery Today. Professionally, six years into her recovery, Mary Beth attended Berkeley Law School. She worked for a large firm in Silicon Valley, then litigated class actions lawsuits for the federal government. In 2014, Mary Beth was appointed as an administrative law judge. She recently retired so she could devote her time to her writing and recovery advocacy. Her new book, is from junkie to judge, one woman's triumph over a trauma and addiction. From a junkie addicted to metamphetamines to a federal judge, Mary Beth's memoir shares her inspiring story from rock bottom to resilience as she forged a personal path to recovery from trauma and addiction. Within a week of being born, Mary Beth was dropped off at a convent when she was brought into her home, her mother focused on her own needs and desires, ignoring her young child. When she was nine, her stepfather kicked her in the stomach for spilling milk, beat her when she didn't clean a plate to his satisfaction, and molested her when she was 12. A few months later, with her first sip of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine, her life changed. She felt euphoric and relaxed. So she got drunk as often as possible, adding pot, then pills, then acid. At 16, she found her drug of choice, metamphetamine. With her first snort, she experienced true joy for the first time. 
When this high was no longer sufficient, she turned to the needle and shot up. During the next 16 years, she descended into a severe meth addiction, working her way down the corporate ladder, destroying relationships and shattering her physical and emotional well-being. At 32, she entered rehab, where she was ordered to submit to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. As an atheist, turning her will and her life over to a higher power was not an option for her, and she refused to agree that she was powerless. Told to comply or fail, she bravely created a new path that combined ideas from multiple programs and even incorporated some AA concepts. Clean and sober now for nearly three decades, she has proof that anyone can find their sober self, their best self, no matter how far they have fallen. Along with her inspiring story, she offers a comprehensive checklist of questions for readers to ask themselves as they take the brave steps towards recovery, offering a powerful blueprint for personal change. You can learn more at the links in the show notes and her fabulous website, junkietojudge.com. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you as a sober sister and as someone who is brave enough to put all of this out there, which had to have been especially scary for someone who was a federal judge. So how was that for you to come clean in public about your path? You know, when I was a, a lawyer and, and and when I was a judge in general, I didn't tell employers about my history. On, on the other hand, I didn't tell them about my trauma or my anxiety or my PTSD either. But there is always, I think, for us that concern that if we disclose, there will be professional ramifications. And so that was definitely part of why I didn't. But when I was a judge, I joined the board for Life Brings Secular Recovery, and I had to run it through ethics. I had to get it like approved. So that was the first time I ever told an employer that I was in recovery. But I had like 23 years at that time, and I didn't say what my drug was. I just said, you know, 23 years sober. Here's what I'm going to do on the board. Um, and so that was that step. But then once I retired, I realized, you know, now I can say anything that I want, whereas many other people can't or choose not to for their own personal reasons. And so my first big public disclosure was the Wall Street Journal op-ed, which was in August of 2020 uh, called I Beat Addiction Without God. And so I disclosed that I was a former judge and a former meth addict and an atheist. And that was a combination that some of the readers were not happy with. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was my really, as I say, you can't be more public than announcing in the Wall Street Journal that you used to do meth. And so that was really the, the turning point. I'm out now. But it's really been freeing because I can talk about anything that I want and I can use my um, my story, which is, you know, somewhat uh, unique uh, to get opportunities to talk about multiple pathways, to talk about the options and benefits of a self-empowered recovery, which even many people with spiritual religious beliefs prefer. I mean, it's a good option for many. And so it's really been um, a process of becoming more and more open and talking more broadly and more generally about, about my story as an an opportunity to advocate for multiple paths. 
Yeah, I love that. And I am a member of AA and I understand your ambivalence towards the program. But uh, for me, it it doesn't feel like a God-centered program. They are very careful about using the word higher power, which is a left up to individual definition. So tell me why AA didn't work for you. Well, let me first say that I support AA and 12 steps in general when it's the right fit. My mm-hmm. only concern is, is when people say it's the only way or a better way, because neither one of those statements are true. So my goal is always just that people know of their options so they can find the right fit and increase their odds of success. But a lot of people like 12 steps for multiple reasons, including the structure, right? And including the fact that there are just so many meetings, they can build a community. But Um, Many people have a preference for other programs. The higher power slash God um, is part of that, that it's not just that you have to have a belief for me and for others. It's not just the belief in a higher power, which a lot of people don't have. I mean, America is increasingly secular. About 30% identify as religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S nuns, not not N-U-N-S nuns. Um, but it's the turn your will in your life over part, the powerless part. Mm-hmm. So that was problematic. I didn't, I wasn't going to turn my will in my life over to something else. And I didn't really believe that I was powerless. And so Life Ring and a lot of the other programs, they focus on the idea of self-empowerment. So for example, Life Ring teaches that your success is based on your motivation and your efforts. In fact, you aren't powerless, but you need to fight for your recovery. And so it's just a different way of thinking about it. Um, And then some people have discomfort with the 12 steps because of the focus on defects or the fact that it's a one size fits, you know, you have to do exactly this or sponsor relationships. But on the other hand, many people find those same things helpful. So it's really just about Um, when newbies say to me, how do I know what's right for me? My answer is read up on like the five or six biggest options. One or two of those are going to call your name. They're going to sound like my people are there or that philosophy is the way I think. And so my recommendation is always go there, try that first, because that's going to be the place you're going to be most likely comfortable you're going to um, like the way that the, the, the meeting formats are different from group to group, like life ring meetings are very different than 12 step meetings. So try them out, see what's comfortable, see what fits, see what attracts you. Just find your right place. There is a good peer support group for everyone. That's the good news. We have choices and there are options. Well, thank you for that. Yes, I do have friends who have dropped out of AA feeling that it was a God-centered program. Um, and like you said, everyone is different and everyone can find a better way using their own individualized approach. So I applaud that sentiment. So you are have this book that has just come out. And are you planning to do a book tour so that listeners can meet you in person? So as I travel to different places, I will be having um, book events and they will be announced on my Twitter, which, you know, at Mary Betho underscore on LinkedIn on my website. So if I'm I, I'm going to have some local ones, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm having one in Pleasanton on Jen, uh, on February 7th, one in Salinas on February 3rd. I'm going to be going to my hometown in New Jersey. So definitely will have events and I will announce them on my social media. 
Um, and my website is junkytojudge.com and I'll try to post things there as well. But yeah, it is an exciting time. And the book for me is really part of the advocacy too. I mean, I, I really wanted with the book a couple things. One is I, I wanted to show the connection between trauma and substance use disorder. I feel like that's underappreciated in America. And so I really wrote about my childhood, what led me to pick up alcohol at 12 and then to keep going, you know, to the point of meth. And the other side of it is I felt like a lot of memoirs, they stopped with, I went to a couple of meetings and everything was great. And in my experience, that's not how recovery works. Mm. And also because I did do recovery a less common way, although more and more people are doing the hybrid approach that I took, but I thought it was important to sort of show how I did it. Not that people should copy me because what works for me may not work for them, but just as a model of sort of how I thought about it, what my considerations were, the kind of techniques that I used. And that's why I do have those guidelines and checklists in the back. 30% of my book is about recovery. And so it's sort of for all of those reasons that I wanted to, to do the book and to really show sort of the full arc from what, what, what was in, impelling me towards drugs, but then also what did my, my first couple of years of recovery look like? Well, already through its advanced review copies, you have so many really stellar reviews. Uh, here's one from Library Journal, which is one of the yeah. top editorial reviews. This is a sad but ultimately uplifting story, recommended. There's often an unspoken hierarchy in the recovering com recovery community with IV drug users unofficially labeled the least likely to succeed. Mary Beth's story counters that assumption in the most inspiring way. Her tale of trauma, loss, and ultimate victory over addiction is a testament to the strength of empowerment approaches to recovery like women for sobriety. If you are struggling with the idea that there is only one way to get sober, you need to read this book. Wow. I mean, I could read more, but you get the idea. There there is a lot of support for this, especially when someone with such a high profile position as a federal judge entrusted with the public good comes out with this unflinching look at what trauma and addiction can look like behind the scenes. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. And um, I, I think it must have been scary when you hit the publish button or the submit button. What Has there been any blowback from former colleagues on the bench or from family? How how has that happened for you? Well, there, there, there hasn't been blowback yet, but um, it actually ships out tomorrow to be more mm -hmm. widely available. I'm sure everyone, you know, everyone isn't happy with even a soft suggestion that there are other options from 12 steps. And that's unfortunate because we should all be interested in whatever's going to increase recovery success. So I'm sure I'll get a little bit of blowback about that as I did in some of my essays. Um, but in, in general, I'm hoping that it's, it's really it's really going to shine the light on how different we are in our recovery than when we're in the midst of our using, right? I mean, I, I chose Junkie to Judge on purpose because I do feel that the IV meth side of it um, is really something that Americans 
assume is you're sort of too far gone. There's no hope for you or, you know, or that there's something really like fundamentally wrong with you that will never get fixed. And I really wanted to own that. I, I was that person, the person you see on TV today, shooting meth, you know, with, with a, a life really broken, I was her. I really wanted to own that. And then the fact that I was able to become a judge, which isn't the most important part of my recovery, but it's a sort of just a marker that, in recovery, our futures are bright. Our futures are open. We can be happy and productive members of society if we can help people to find their way to sobriety. That's what they have to offer us is, you know, their contributions to society. And so it was really partly that that I wanted to show. Recovery, we don't know how far we can go if we can find recovery. And so hopefully all of us want to help as many people as we can get that positive step forward. Absolutely. And you make the important point that uh, trauma is so often a part of addiction and alcoholism. And as I hear people's stories in the rooms, that is affirmed. And it is true for me as well. Like I, I believe I was drinking to escape myself in introspection. So that too was very brave. When I sometimes speak about sexual assault and abuse, um, especially what young women flock to me afterwards and say, I can't believe you said that out loud. So the abusers in our lives, mine now is dead, at least one of them, the main one. How about for you? Is that person still alive? And do you fear for what the reaction will be from people who know that person? He died last summer. I mean, the book was already, you know, coming out now regardless, but it does sort of simplify things a little bit that I don't have to deal with any um, pushback from him. I mean, of course, my siblings would have verified and validated, you know, what I'm saying because they were there too, but it is cleaner in a way that he's gone. And my mother, who wasn't the worst physical abuser, but was problematic in a lot of ways, also died a few years ago. And so that does make it a little a little easier to to not have to worry about it. I don't think I would have been less honest, but it just is less complicated in that way. And and I will say that you know the part about the abuse. I mean, I had child abuse, but I also had several rapes, and um, and I lived with an abusive boyfriend, and so I had multiple types of trauma. And and for that, I would like to throw out a shout out to She Recovers Foundation because She Recovers is a peer support group for women. But it's not just substance use. It's also recovery from trauma or the PTSD and mental health issues that might follow or behavioral disorders like self-harm, sort of all in one place. And that is a comfortable place for many women because most of us in recovery, a very high percentage, have other things going on, either mental health struggles or trauma recoveries or eating disorders. You know, we, we tend to have overlap, right, in these different areas. And so it, we I know I needed to recover from the PTSD that I didn't know I had and the severe anxiety that I didn't know I had. That was actually a longer and harder recovery than my substance use recovery. It took much longer because it was deeper and older. Um, but so I like to, I do include the trauma in the subtitle because it's recovery from that too. Um, and also as a, just a point that yes, we can recover from all of it. It takes time and work, but we can. Absolutely. I agree. And, uh, we don't have to do it alone. That is such yes. a huge 
that was such a huge learning piece of it for me because I was raised thinking I could be completely self-sufficient and I didn't want anybody's help. And until I found appropriate help and used it, I was never going to get well. So uh, thank you for that important piece of it. So uh, your next year will probably be filled with doing book appearances and talking about this important addition to addiction recovery literature. But what what is next for you? Have you looked past uh, getting this book out there and really in the public consciousness? What's next? So for me, the book is really intertwined with my advocacy. You know, I'm on the board for Lifering and on the board for She Recovers, as you mentioned, and I speak generally about multiple pathways about as well as those programs. And so my goal is to use my personal story and the book sort of overlapping to just continue to be able to speak about the issues that are important to me. You know, I go to do conferences or podcast, television, radio, whatever it can be. And also to do, you know, my good work for the organizations that I'm on the board for. I do actual work for those organizations mm -hmm. um, because I think they offer value. And so that's really what it's what it's going to be about. I mean, I am retired now. So this is sort of my part-time job that, that I do uh, to try to just increase awareness and to reassure people. You know, the other side of the reassurance too is the families and friends. So Sometimes friends and families have only heard of 12 steps. They've only heard of AA or NA, and they can get nervous if their family member is choosing a different path. And so part of the reason I like to talk about it, and, and because I'm a judge and I have 29 years now, it's sort of, it's a way to say to the friends and family, it's okay if your family member wants to use a different peer support group. Like it's, I'm, I'm an example of that can work sort of like as a reassurance. And, um, and so that is part of making it more well-known as well, is to reassure the friends and family that if your family member's picking any peer support group and is being persistent and serious about it, that's what is important. It's not important that they pick the one that you heard of. It's right. important they pick the one where they think they can do best and that they are giving it their best effort. Absolutely. So what is one way in which um, LifeRing or any other recovery program you've been involved with differs from AA? So we focus on self-empowerment. And so the, the difference would be that I, for example, did not turn my will and my life over. I owned control of my recovery and I made my recovery choices for myself. It doesn't mean alone, right? I mean, I, when I was in rehab and they told me all, there was only 12 steps, I read all of the big book and all of the NA text looking for the parts that I thought would help me. And I, when I found the other organizations, I read all of their materials. I, I was serious in rehab. I went to a lot of meetings. So I was always listening and looking for ideas that I thought could be helpful. Um, but I wasn't following what someone else was saying was the right way to do it. I was looking for the right way for me. The other thing is that the meeting format can be really different from group to group. So, for example, in LifeRing, there is no drug history speaker at the beginning. The format is called How Was Your Week? So we focus on current events. What happened last week related to your recovery and what's coming up in the next week? So drug history is only discussed if it's related to a current issue. 
but it gives in what it means is there's more time for the people um, attending the meeting to share because 20 or 30 minutes of the meeting isn't taken up with the speaker. Mm -hmm. And so that's some people, again, some people love the speaker and some people prefer to have more time for the group members to talk and to share. And in life, when we have crosstalk, members talk directly to each other has to be supportive, positive or neutral, the convener controls it. So there can be a lot of differences from group to group that um, that that people can find out if they go to the websites. The good news is I got sober in 94. There was no Google. Okay. I had to <laughs> I had to find the other groups by going to the library. But now a quick Google search and you can look at their philosophy, at their meeting format, at their, you know, some of their written materials. So there is, you know, it's it's easy for people to look at their choices and also try them out. I mean, you know, go to an AA meeting, go to a life ring or she recovers and see which one's comfortable for you. So the other thing I will say is you don't have to pick one. Right. <laughs> you can mix and match life ring and she recovers. Both have members who also do AA. Yeah. And that's OK, because if if our member thinks that their best um recovery foundation will be by going to their local AA meeting and life ring online, for example, then we support that because it's their choice as to what's going to be the best program, the best plan for them. So those are just sort of some of the broad differences. Okay. I like that. I mean, I do also attend a Buddhist recovery group and um, a yoga recovery group. So I like adding and moving things around as my life changes and depending on what the current issues are. So thank you for that. Do you have children? No. Yeah. Well, children add another layer of (laughs) to this whole discussion. Now you also became a judge at a time when um, there were fewer women on the bench. Can you tell us a bit about that journey and how hard it is uh, even without the addiction piece to become a federal judge as a woman and how you overcame some of the hurdles. So I went to um, law school when I had six and a half years sober and law school is actually um, women are slightly higher percentage now than men in law school. And that's been true for about the last 10 to 15 years. But um, moving up the ladder, it can be less true. Like if like at the big law firms where I first worked, the number of women hired initially might be similar, but it's but when you get up to the partner level, it drops. And part of that is the lack of family friendly support, you know, the ridiculously high hours, things along those and, and women just choosing not to want to live that way, which is what I did. Um, but for judges, there's a, there are a lot of different kinds of judges. And so they're the kinds you see on TV where they have to be confirmed by Congress. Um, and those are really chosen in a different way than the kind of judge that I was. I was an administrative law judge. And for my group, it was testing. You test, you take a bunch of different tests. You, you apply, this huge group applies. You take a test, they cut it down. You take another test, they cut it down. You take another test, they cut it down. So that was a little bit more female friendly. Um, uh, but it is in general, the law, as well as many other fields do have problems with women being able to find an appropriate balance and able to manage um, having a family and having uh, a job that has the kind of hours and also the unpredictability of the work can be problematic. And so a lot of women choose to either do things like government or smaller firms where it's more balanced or they start their own firms, right, where they can have more control. 
Uh, and part of that is just, you know, in America, we don't have good daycare options for a lot of people. And it's just, it's families are a struggle for, for many reasons. I don't, I mean, look, women lawyers have an advantage over many other women in America because they make a higher salary, right? And so the problems that female lawyers face are really exacerbated for a lot of other women because they also have um, a more difficult financial situation. But yeah, it's it's definitely the law is better than some other fields, um, but it still can be challenging to be able to move forward, especially if you have a family. Can you explain to our listeners, many of whom are not lawyers, what is an administrative law judge? So um, there, you know, there's the Supreme Court of the United States, right? And then there are appeals courts and trial courts and criminal courts and traffic court. And there are state courts and federal courts and your county, local county courts. And so there's just a lot of different types of courts. Um, in the California, an administrative law judge handles a lot of different types of smaller or matters or related to agency things like, let's say, licensing of um beauticians and other types of, of problems. In the federal government, you work for a specific agency. So I worked for the Social Security Administration. So all of my cases were Social Security Administrative Administration cases. So there's people, there's just a, a whole gamut of different types of judges in America, depending on what state you're in and how it's structured. So yeah, that, that's what I did. I, I I mean, I held hearings, but I didn't do criminal cases, for example. I you know, judges usually there's an area that of responsibility that they have called jurisdiction, basically. And so you work within your jurisdiction. And mine was working for the Social Security Administration. Do you think that we will be able to collect Social Security or do you think <laughs> it will sometimes go away? Sometime go away. Well, that's a political question. And there's, I, can, I can give you a long answer about the problems with the way we fund Social Security, but um, that would be my personal political opinion. <laughs> All right. I'll let you off the hook for that because nobody has a crystal ball right now. So uh, uh, for me, Boone's Farm also was my first drink and something called TJ Swan, which was very, very similar, but how horrible. I mean, I really think those kinds of drinks should be taken off the market because they taste sweet and are attractive probably to many teenagers. So yuck, thinking about that now, just sometimes sometimes I cringe about some of the things when I remember what I did. Does that happen to you? How do you move forward without being mired in the past and in shame? How did you get over that? I, I mean, I don't really feel any shame about my substance use disorder. I view it as a, a brain, you know, a brain disorder. And I also know that it was trauma related and something that I started when I was 12 and that was out of control by the time I was 17. So, you know, I don't, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There were things that I did that I wish I hadn't done, but most of the things that I did that were problematic hurt me. <laughs> you know, they were dangerous for me. I was putting myself in dangerous situations. I was sleeping with people I barely knew. I was, you know, um, going to places with where there was a high risk of some violence happening, I, you know. So most of the most of the things that I wish, I wish, like in a you know in a perfect world, if I would have been a healthy human being, that I wouldn't have done. I wish it in that way. I understand why I did it. I understand why I was where I was. It's not that I'm judging myself, but most of those things were self harm things, and I think that's true for a lot of us. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I know I really felt it as, as a, as a brain disorder and I really, I really don't feel shame around that. And I don't really even feel shame around other things like my sexual history, which, you know, some people might think was a little excessive, but you know, that's where I was at the time. And I was an abused child and a sexually assaulted child. And that's a common reaction. Right. And so even, even when I had the violent boyfriend, I, I knew he was violent and I moved in with him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and I thought a lot about that, but I don't judge myself over it. I, I think about it as in, what caused me to make that choice? What pain was I carrying? What damage was I carrying that would have had me make such a self-harm decision as moving in with somebody who I already knew was violent? Yeah, well, that's a much more healthy way to to look at things. Thank you for that. So I am actually not familiar with the group, the She Recovers Foundation. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, as I as I mentioned briefly, it's it, they felt that there was really sort of a, a a gap in the peer support options, and so she recovers talks about how we're all recovering from something, and seventy five or eighty percent of the women do have a substance use disorder, but it is also for recovery from trauma, mental health, from behavioral disorders like eating or gambling or self harm, from grief, from loss. Uh, and so it's really all in one place so that the women talk about all of these different things. You don't have to silo out over here. I talk about my substance use disorder and over there I talk about my eating disorder and over there I talk about my trauma. We talk about it together. And that is because most women with substance use disorder have one or more other things going on. And so it's a way to keep it in a more integrated place. And so She Recovers has daily meetings. We have uh, two meetings a day online. We have yoga, we have meditation, because there's a focus on the mind-body connection. There are local groups, you know, that meet um, that meet in person. There are retreats, There, there's a, a conference. There are a lot of different types of activities. There are subgroups like for first responders or mothers um you know uh people uh, uh, women of color so it's oh, really uh, actually for law people in law too now i'm remembering yes, i, yes, I met you there my gosh what am i talking about i just uh <laughs> blanked for a minute so <laughs> that's crazy okay what let's go to one i really don't know which is women for sobriety what is that so Women for Sobriety was the first um, modern secular program, and it was the first one I found when I got out of rehab that was in 12 steps. And so Women for Sobriety's focus is really on uh, a belief that if that women can take control of their lives and release their past. And it's a lot of it's about positive affirmations and sort of a cognitive behavioral approach. And one of the things that I loved initially, particularly about Women for Sobriety, was in a meeting, you don't identify yourself with, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. The identifier is, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. Oh, and, love that. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah. And, so, and I like to use this as an example of what we need in recovery can change over time. Because when I first went in the rooms, I thought I needed to say over and over and over, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict, like beat it in my brain. 
But by the time I found WFS, it was eight months later, and I was no longer comfortable identifying myself that way. I felt that it was too narrow. Like I was saying it like it was the most important thing about me when it wasn't. Mm. And so when I found WFS and it was, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. I sort of like sat up straight, actually got goosebumps. You know, I mean, it, it was, it met me where I was. That's what, where I was at that moment. So their focus is that we are caring, compassionate, competent, um, and confident women. That's the four C's. And so, yes, it's also, they have online meetings, in-person meetings. I speak at their uh, conferences the last couple of years. And so any, any of the women, it's a good organization to look at and see if it's a good fit for you. Oh, I love that. So I like to ask all of the guests the following question. What do you do to become your best version? I think part of it is really, um, for me, especially in the beginning, let's talk about what, you know, a good approach in early recovery. I think part of it is patience and also prioritizing. So when I went in recovery, I had broken so much of my life. I mean, I was 32. I had destroyed pretty much everything. Um, I could not fix it all at once. It was, it was, there was too many, there were too many broken things. And so I really had to look at the picture and pick my priorities, my first priorities for my first plan. You know, what am I really going to focus on right now? Um, like I was, I had been gaining weight because I was a meth addict when I got sober. That had to wait. Like, you know, I was, that, that just wasn't priority number one, two, or three. And so it was really about thinking about what do I have the bandwidth to focus on? So pick my priorities and what's my initial plan in all of those areas? And but then it's about ongoing reassessment, right? Because we achieve some of those initial goals and now we can start doing moving forward in other ways. And so it's that sort of iterative process, being patient with the incremental improvement, step by step, reassess regularly so that you keep moving forward. Because it's astounding what you can do in a year or three years or five, if you just have that patience and you just keep making one step in front of the other. What's the right next goal? How do I get to that right next goal? Oh, I love that. It's so important because sometimes one can feel overwhelmed with the tasks that one wants to accomplish. So I appreciate that message. And I thank you so much for being here and taking time out, time out during the, on the eve of your book launch. Why gosh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to read it. I have ordered a copy uh, months ago because I so want to get my hands on this book. So go to junkietojudge.com, order a book or Amazon or any bookstore, independent bookstore, you can order it if they don't already have it. Um, and because Library Journal gave it such a good review, any library, public library will put it on their bookshelves if requested, if they don't already have it. So congratulations. And thank you again for being such a beacon of hope for so many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.